0: It's my pleasure to welcome you to The Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. You know, the pandemic has changed lots about what we pay for our housing, what we pay for transportation. Today, I want to address our cost of living, particularly our housing, and what you can do about it. And I've got some odd suggestions for you I'm going to give you. And speaking of spending, all we're hearing about right now is prices going up, up, and away for everything we do. That makes headlines. But there's also sectors of the economy that for a number of unusual factors also related to the hopefully moving in our rearview mirror pandemic that have led to deals On items in a bunch of categories. And I'm going to tell you how that's working to your advantage in your wallet. So, city after city around the country, the stories are about how expensive uh, buying a house has gotten, how expensive renting an apartment has gotten. The city in America that's gotten the most coverage about its apartments is a fast-growing metro area in Florida, Jacksonville, that is in news story after news story on TV and in uh, print around the country about how impossible it's become for people to find not just something they can afford, but even a vacancy somewhere. And one of my brothers was telling me a story about a friend of his Who's on the waiting list at 16 different apartment complexes in Jacksonville, and how they've continually raised their budget, and they still can't find a place, and so they're living with uh, her husband's mom because there's no afford, there's no apartments just available, and this is happening city after city. Even you look at New York City which was so heavily hit by COVID with extreme lockdowns and extreme number of deaths in the New York metro area and apartment rents in New York have gone absolutely unbelievably high and the vacancies there's just like, it's, it's takes an act of Congress to find an apartment available. And I'm not just talking Manhattan. If you know the New York metro area, even Outer boroughs, it's become very difficult to find housing. And I could name city after city. I could talk about the Salt Lake Valley in Utah. I could talk about the Denver metro area, what's going on in Colorado Springs, uh, what's going on in the uh, Southern California market, Phoenix, uh, the Texas markets, particularly Austin, place after place, Atlanta, where the cost of apartment rentals and houses have gone crazy. Well, in the midst of this, USA Today did something that is the kind of thing people do in a time like this where people are just exasperated. They put together a list of the 10 metro areas where housing is the most affordable. And they had a floor on the size of the metro area to make the list. And the number one most affordable in the country for rent is... The only state in America I've not been to is positions one and two on this list. Grand Forks, North Dakota, where typical rent on a two-bedroom apartment, average $890 a month. Fargo, North Dakota, $936 a month. I'm giving two bedrooms because that's kind of a way to compare shop. But you're thinking, okay, is Clark only going to give me places that it's really cold in winter? No. Number three, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Baton Rouge, where rent of a two-bedroom apartment is a little over $1,000, Omaha, Nebraska, another place that gets cold in the winter, Uh, we make a big jump there, $1,300 and change a month, San Antonio, $1,300 a month, Indianapolis, $1,200 and change a month, Memphis, $1,200 a month, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, $1,300 and change a month. Albuquerque, New Mexico, 1400 a month. Des Moines, Iowa, 1300 and change a month. So I give those rents, and they may not sound, based on what you're paying where you are, that may not sound affordable, but what's happened in so many other cities, that these average rents I just gave you are much more affordable. And Now that there are millions upon millions of Americans who work in jobs where they can work remotely, They have the ability to live one place for lifestyle or affordability and work somewhere else. Even with employers that require that you be in the office a few days a month. I read a story, I forget where I read it recently, about how there's a new market hotels are serving and it's why the hottest part of the hotel market or extended stay properties is where somebody may have to come in to the home office one time a month or something like that. And so people are coming in and they're renting a home away from home for that week a month or those days in a month or whatever. Even if they're living all the way across the country, they're saving so much money. It was a New York Times story. Thank you, Krista. They're saving so much money living in a more affordable place where they could afford a home where they didn't have the long commutes, where the whole lifestyle thing was better. And then when they have to, with all the discount airlines and all that, they saw an opportunity to be able to be a commuter who comes in so many times a year and can afford the flights, can afford the hotel stay, maybe even bunk with a friend where the employer is. There are a number of options. Rent a room from somebody you work with in their home. I mean, there are lots of options where you don't necessarily have to feel like a sitting duck living in an ultra high cost market with very, very long commutes. If you work in a service business where you have to be visible and present for your customers, obviously, the suggestions that I'm making don't work unless you uproot your whole life and move to a place with a much more affordable cost of living, then you've got a different situation. We have a tool at Clark.com that was done by another organization where you can put in where it is you live or where you're thinking of going, and it will calculate for you the cost of living for you where you are versus somewhere else. And you can see what a difference it might make in your life and in your lifestyle if you were to uproot. You know, a story for a long time this century was that people were not moving like Americans used to. It was because of the two-income household thing, where people were finding it harder to move because maybe one person in a household found a better opportunity somewhere else, but the other couldn't find that opportunity, so they stayed. Well, the pandemic upset all that, and Americans are on the move again. This is a time that you can do a full reset for your life, your career, and your wallet. Krista?
1: This is from Christopher in South Carolina. It's not a question, but a suggestion for Clark regarding a question he was asked by a traveling nurse going to the Asheville area. I'm a real estate investor, and coincidentally, I Airbnb and rent a property in Asheville. I have been booked for about a year and a half straight with very few days vacant to almost exclusively traveling nurses who are usually on about 60 or 90 day contracts. Although my studio is listed on Airbnb, most of my rental activity has been through another site Clark should know about called furnishedfinder.com, which Not I take, take a look, with that one. Furnished look at. furnished. FurnishedFinder.com. It is not a booking site. It's just a way for searchers to connect with owners. I typically use a short-term lease document and collect money electronically through Venmo or
0: similar. So um, I really appreciate the suggestion, Christopher. The the issue always with a platform where you're not doing things through the platform and paying through the platform, you're an honest person earning an honest living off your rental It always creates the opportunity for a a con where somebody posts a property available, they collect money from you, you know, deposit first month, that kind of thing through Venmo or Cash App or the one I can't stand Zelle. And then they get there and it turns out there is no property. And that is the danger. But I really appreciate the suggestion because – Traveling nurses have a great opportunity to make money like they never have or will in their entire lives. But then comes the issue, where are they going to put their head at night? And that's been really hard with the housing problems, the shortages in a lot of the country.
1: This is from Jeff in Illinois. Can you explain what risks exist with my accounts at brokerage houses and how to mitigate them? I understand investment performance risk. But specifically, how do I protect myself from someone impersonating me and withdrawing my money? Or is there a risk that a broader breach could result in my funds along with other investors being stolen by a bad guy? I have two-factor authentication and activity alerts. Are there any other steps to take? Is it advisable to split the assets between Vanguard, Fidelity, and Schwab rather than be solely with one? You are with me every day when I walk or exercise. I have several of my friends listening to the podcast now, and we often share what we heard from Clark?
0: Well, I'm so glad you asked this question, because if you have an account at a bank or credit union, and you're a consumer and it gets hacked, your money is protected, except with Zelle, everything else you do with a bank or credit union. you how Zelle Zelle's a constant theme of shame on our show. Anyway, um, with a brokerage house, there are no federal legal requirements that a brokerage house restore your funds in the event your account is hacked. So it goes by a different standard, which is that did you take good precautions? Did you do what you should have done to protect your account? And you doing two-factor authentication is something anyone who has a brokerage account, mutual fund account, a 401k account, anything like that, even a 403B, anything like that, please set up two-factor authentication. An example where an account might get hacked, you worked for an old employer, you left a 401k there, you've moved a couple of times, you don't get statements from it anymore, you lost track of it, that gets hacked, you could potentially be out your money because you didn't do your part to protect that account. Now, Schwab is the only firm I know of. There may be another someone can point out to me, but Charles Schwab has a clear, concise guarantee that they protect you from account hacks. There is no equivalent wording I've been able to find on Fidelity, and I know Vanguard offers no such protections. And so this is a problem out in the marketplace where we're left kind of to the wolves on the potential for hacks. So it's important that you think this through, take proper steps. And what I do is I have a lot of money at Vanguard. I check my Vanguard account, even though normally I would not look to see losses, gains, anything like that, except four times a year, but I make sure that my account is okay, twice a week at Vanguard just because I'm paranoid having done this so many years about the possibility of hackers. And it's wrong that the brokerage industry has opposed efforts in Congress to provide consumers the same protection on their brokerage accounts and investment accounts and mutual fund accounts and 401k accounts that we have on our bank and credit union accounts. By the way, with banks, and credit unions, business owners, you do not have that protection. You are held to a much higher standard as a business owner, and you are expected to do good steps that you have written down that you can refer to, we do this, 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 and this, because you have to show under what's known as the Uniform Commercial Code that you took good care of, uh, there's a legal term for it, I'm not a lawyer, I can't tell you the legal term, but that you took good care of your accounts, and did everything you could to protect your funds in that institution, if you can't do that, the bank can say, ah, well, that money's gone from your business.
1: Speaking of funds, Candace in Alaska says, Clark, when you recommend to keep $400 cash in small and various denominations, do you mean per person or per household?
0: So everything I've been reading since the Ukraine war started says that my idea is solid, The amount of money I've recommended that people put aside is not near enough if there was a concerted effort by Putin to shut down our normal databases and banking systems and ATMs and credit card processing and all that. What I've said is $400 is what we keep in our household. And that may be naive because of the clear threat that dictator Putin represents to us and the world. And so the latest recommendation I saw, maybe may be a war-induced hysteria, is that per household, you should have $2,500. I have not changed my $400, but that is the latest recommendation I've seen, is $2,500 per household, thinking that if a serious shutdown of our data networks occurred, that you may have to do business in cash for a meaningful period of time. Strongest recommendation I've read since the whole Putin threat came along is that they should be in small bills. No 50s, no 100s, uh, 1s, 5s, 10s, 20s because people are not going to be willing to accept large bills and make change for large bills if we get into something where we go back to an analog era instead of our digital era for a while. And I don't want to panic you about that. I'm not trying to upset you. I just want to tell you that we're in a time that has a lot of uncertainty to it. We don't know how this war is going to play out, where it's going to end, uh, where Russia's territorial ambitions will stop. And the tools of the trade include All kinds of electronic actions, including hacking into various networks and causing havoc and chaos. And Putin, obviously, is of a mentality that all those things are on the table. So on that warm, happy note, I do have actually some good news. How about I have good news? Yes. Not everything is going up in price. I want to tell you about the opportunities that exist in the marketplace. We hear every day shortage of this, shortage of that, shortage of the other, this going up in price, that going up in price, the other going up in price. And in the midst of all that, there are categories where the prices are going the other way. I want to give you some examples. Okay, you go back to 20 and If you could find a laptop, MacBook, or Chromebook, you were lucky. People were paying significantly more for used computers than what they were new. Sounds a lot like the car market right now, right? Anyway, that has completely flipped. And laptops now are generally in surplus. Apple, uh, unusual for them, being pretty aggressive at discounting the newest generations of the M1 chip-based MacBook Airs and MacBook Pros. They're not doing it direct with Apple. Uh, you got to know something about Apple's business model, and you need to know this if you're an Apple devotee. Is that a word, devotee? People who go direct to Apple are Apple fanboys and fangirls, and they are not price-oriented, price-sensitive. They are product-centered. So Apple does not need to discount directly. It's very rare that Apple will discount directly. But third-party channels, retailers, electronic stores, the warehouse clubs, they discount Apple products because the person who comes in to buy an Apple product at Best Buy or at Walmart or at Sam's Club or Costco or whatever, they are somebody who's more a free agent. And so then the deals are in the marketplace. By the way, always know about Micro Center if they're in your part of the country, microcenter.com. They are a very aggressive discounter of Apple products. And so Apple's having to discount all the Windows-based computer companies discounting, the Chromebooks discounting. I've noticed the prices have come full round trip back to 19, except the computers are more capable. I'm seeing deals all over the place. Second category, TVs that went up so much in price as there were the chip shortages and people were spending so much time at home during the in the parts of the country that had the severe shutdowns to more modest shutdowns. People said, I got to get me a big TV. And people were buying them like you can't believe. Well, now that demand is not there as the pandemic restrictions ended and as people felt like, you know, I don't care if it's still going on with COVID, I'm getting out and doing things. The demand for fun at home kind of things like uh, TVs has stopped. I mean, it's like stopped. So the TV prices are coming down, down, down. We do a roundup on ClarkDeals.com and you can see, like we check historical, the prices have come down so much. Another category where price is going down instead of up. Um, I should say in computers, if you're into gaming, different story. That's where the chip shortage is really affecting prices. And people that are into high powered gaming laptops, they're seeing prices go to the sky and beyond. But there are these categories one we talked about back in late January, and that is holiday season-oriented merchandise didn't make it to retailers in time. And I'm still going into stores seeing leftover Christmas stuff being marked down, marked down, marked down. And you know what else never made it to retailers? Seasonal goods. Clothing that was for fall and winter Heavily is showing up now. So, retailers are between a rock and a hard place. They can either try to find scarce warehouse space to store past season goods till the next season, they can sell off to people like Ross or TJ Maxx or Marshall, same company. And you'll find in those stores, they have massive inventory of past season goods right now. And the retailers that choose to hold on to their own inventory and not store it, they're having to clear it out at really great prices. So, there are segments of the economy that, because of the seasonal nature of what they do, or in the case of things that were pandemic related, they were all at home indoor activities and people are now out doing things again, that there are really good deals out there. That's the zig for the zag of our time right now with a lot of things we do getting steadily more expensive. Krista,
1: I definitely want to head to Marshalls to after Are You a big Marshall shopper? This. I love
0: all, right, all those. I report back that I was making it all up or it really is true.
1: Marshalls, TJ Maxx and Home Goods. I love all three of those same companies. Are
0: those all TJX companies? Mm-hmm. Are you a stockholder? No. Okay. Sounds like a stockholder, the way you're talking. (laughs)
1: No, I just, I like to get a deal. David in Oregon wrote in and said, I know that when interest rates rise, the price of bonds as tradable entities goes down, and I understand the reasons for this behavior, but it seems to me the future dividend payments in a bond fund should increase because of the generally higher interest rates. So for investors in bond mutual funds, can you explain whether a rise in interest rates is necessarily a bad thing Or could it maybe be a wash because of the decrease in the current value of the investment is offset by the increased future dividend
0: payments? So David, you are so wise. So first I should explain, because when people are asked this on uh, personal finance surveys, over 80% of people get this one wrong. People make the assumption that when interest rates rise, the value of bonds and bond funds will go up when actually they go down. Because if I don't own a bond and I go to buy one, I'm not going to buy yours with a lower interest rate than the new one I can get that pays a higher interest rate. So I've got to discount my bond so that it gives you the equivalent interest rate of what the current market is. So you are completely on the money. So I own a number of bond funds. And I know there are people who say, I'm out of my mind and I should should have sold them or should sell them now in a rising interest rate environment. But I play the long game and I play asset allocation, meaning my money is divided out in different types of things. And I add to what I invest in every month. And so I'm a steady as you go, what's known as dollar cost averaging investor. In your case, you're right that in the short term, bond funds take it hard with the value of the fund declining. But if you're in a long game, what happens is you benefit over the long haul by bonds earning a higher rate of interest than what they earn when we're in a depressed interest rate environment. Short-term pain leads to ultimate long-term gain but if you are a short-termer with money this is a very rough time to be in bond funds or bonds.
1: This one is from Bradley in Oklahoma. My mother is in her late 70s. She is also legally blind. Today she called me and told me that someone called her with a story about her credit card being used at Amazon and that there was a $15,000 worth of charges all over the country. And she told him, Bradley that she gave them the following information, zip code, date of birth, and the name of her bank. She called her bank and told them, and they set up a verbal code for her to use as a means of extra security. Should she do more to protect herself and is a credit freeze in order?
0: Uh, great. You answered your own question. It's not, is a credit freeze in order? A credit freeze is an order. And you want to help your mom. Um, I mean, truthfully, you can Impersonator is her son if she's not capable of doing it at this point being legally blind and older you freeze all three of her credit files uh, as quick as you can that is a very important thing for you to do as far as the bank the height of caution would be to move her money completely to another bank or credit union because you don't know with the pretext getting the information they got, and maybe your mom let slip a couple of other details that she doesn't remember letting slip. You don't want to be reliant upon a bank having one additional security precaution with a secret code or secret word. I would pick the money up and start all over somewhere else. I know that's offensive to people who work at the bank. They didn't do anything wrong. Your mom didn't do anything wrong. The wrong person... The person who did wrong is the crook, trying to pretext her out of her money, but the height of caution would be to move the money somewhere else. Before you freeze your mom's credit files, set up a Credit Karma account. It's free to do. You'll be able to monitor activity on your mom's accounts uh, whenever you want, completely for free, and you'll have a very early warning system. If any funny business goes on, once her credit's frozen, you can't set up that Credit Karma account, which is why you do it in that order, set up the Credit Karma, and then do the three credit freezes.
1: Okay. And this is from Lee in Georgia. Because the price of building materials has skyrocketed, I'm not sure I have enough home insurance. How much home insurance should I have?
0: Lee, I'm so glad you're asking this question. I just was having a conversation with a friend about this two days ago about why so many people, because he was asking me about his homeowner's insurance, why so many people are so drastically underinsured. Because you could live in a neighborhood, let's say you live in a neighborhood that's a suburban neighborhood, where it was one production builder, a lot of the homes are very similar in construction. If you take a partial loss on that home, uh, could be a, a fire, storm damage, something like that, the cost of rebuilding per square foot way outruns what the cost to buy a home per square foot is in your neighborhood. Then you add on top of it the increase in cost of building materials. And then in addition, so many people are frightfully underinsured if they've lived in their home more than five years because home values and the cost of uh, all the materials involved, even in building sticks up are up so much. So people are reluctant to give more money to their homeowner's insurer. So my solution to that, take a higher deductible on your homeowner's insurance. Avoid filing any small claims, but make sure you have a lot of money available to rebuild, expecting the cost of rebuild to be three times per square foot what current prices are to buy an entire house converted to square foot is in your neighborhood. Not twice, three times. And your insurer may say that, Ball can say that's too much coverage, but I'd rather you err on the side of having too much to fix and repair and rebuild your home than too little. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please share it with a friend. Help us empower others to take control of their lives, to get more freedom in their lives and more choice for their future.